Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we're going to talk about the original Celtics. Not to be confused with the Boston Celtics. They are two completely different organizations that happen to share a name. Well, not just happen to share a name, but I'll get to that later. Now, in order to put this story into context, I need to take you back to the 1920s. The American economy is booming. As one of the winners of World War I, Americans are feeling really good about themselves. Much of the money and effort that went into trying to win the war is now being put to use in the domestic economy. Technological progress is being made. It seemed like a new invention was coming out every week. Massive improvements in transportation and communication were happening all the time. Skyscrapers were going up in cities like New York and Chicago and elsewhere. Business was growing leaps and bounds. There is a reason that the decade was known as the Roaring Twenties. In terms of sports, this was a decade dominated by Babe Ruth and the New York Yankees of Major League Baseball. If you are a baseball fan, then you know that even today, Babe Ruth is considered one of the greatest players of all time. And for some, he is still considered the greatest player of all time. You also had the famous Red Grange dominating American football that decade, first for the University of Illinois and later for the Chicago Bears. It was a golden age for American sports. And this is the background for our story. There was a previous team called the New York Celtics. They were a team made up of teenagers in what was then the rough Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan's West Side. After just a couple of years, they got better and were now playing in the semi-pro ranks. And when I say semi-pro, what I mean is that they were paid for the games they played, but it wasn't enough money to completely support themselves. As a player, you had to have a day job to make ends meet. The team continued to improve dramatically to the point where they were beginning to play basketball against a couple of fully professional teams. They usually lost, but they made it a good game. And then in 1918, the original manager, Tip McCormick, decided to step back from managing the team. He allowed a man named James Fury to take over the team and manage them. But McCormick made it very clear that Fury would have to find a new name. He could no longer call the team the New York Celtics. Because McCormick's reputation was so tied to the team's performance, he didn't want to have the risk of Fury running the team into the ground and with it McCormick's reputation. But Fury didn't like this because the name Celtics put fear into other teams and he didn't want to lose that. So taking advantage of a loophole in the agreement, he decided to call the team the original Celtics. And now that Fury was in charge, his first course of action was to improve the team even more. 
The original teenagers that started the team were all gone. He was working with new players and was always looking for more good players. He signed three quality veterans to join the team. Johnny Beckman, at the time he was known as the Babe Ruth of basketball. He also added Swede Grimstead, another solid pro, and they added Dutch Dennert. Both Beckman and Dennert are now in the Hall of Fame, and both were in their prime when they joined the original Celtics. Fury's goal for the team was to be considered the best team in the city, and that was a big deal. With travel being more difficult and more expensive back then, basically each major city had its own set of teams or even its own league. So Boston had its own league, Philadelphia had its own league, and New York City had its own league. Eventually, the very best teams from each of these leagues began to make the trip to play each other and that began the development of regional leagues, like a Midwest League and an East Coast League. Eventually, the best teams from these regional leagues formed the first true national level league, and that league is known today as the NBA. But back then, Fury just wanted to dominate New York City, and in order to establish their dominance over the city, they would have to defeat the New York Whirlwinds. The Whirlwinds were a team put together by boxing promoter Tex Rickard. He took his boxing money and used it to sign the best available players around. And it nearly worked. They came together very quickly and won some big games against some big teams. And they made themselves the target of James Fury and the original Celtics. The two teams set up a three-game series for the unofficial championship of New York City. The first game was played according to amateur rules, which means that no one fouled out. So both teams just hacked at each other and turned the game into a free throw parade. The Whirlwinds won that first game 40-27, to but 25 of the Whirlwind points came at the free throw line. And for the Celtics, 22 of their 27 points also came at the line. And back then, each team was allowed to pick who shot the free throws no matter who was fouled. For the Celtics, Johnny Beckman took the foul shots. 23 of his 25 points came at the line. The whirlwind selected Nat Holman, and he scored all of his 22 points from the free throw line. Could you imagine something like that today? There would be no hack-a-shack if you knew that Kobe would end up shooting the free throws. And nobody would dare foul anyone on the Phoenix Suns knowing that Steve Nash would go to the line every single time you fouled someone. But those were the rules back then. The second game was played by professional rules. The Celtics came back to win 26-24 to even the series. Each team only scored six points from the field and all the rest of the points came from the free throw line. Again, probably not the most fun game to watch unless you really, really like watching free throws. The third game was never played. In trying to arrange the venue, the negotiations fell apart. There is no reason formally given by either team as to why they never played the third game, but there is a note in a publication at the time called The Reach Guide saying that the two teams suspected that gamblers may try to fix the third game, and they did not want to become another betting scandal like the 1919 White Sox of baseball. The reference being the fact that the 1919 White Sox purposely lost the World Series to the Cincinnati Reds in exchange for illegal payments by gamblers who bet big on, the, on Cincinnati to win. 
But Fury was so impressed by Nat Holman, the sharpshooting guard and dribbling wizard from the Whirlwinds, that he signed him away and brought him to the Celtics. And that was the end of the Whirlwinds. That's why you don't hear much about them. They were just here, and just as quickly, they were gone. And this is a good place to take a break, and we'll be right back with more on the original Celtics right after this. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome back. As I was just mentioning, the Celtics signed away Nat Holman from the Whirlwinds. And with Holman, another future Hall of Famer, to go with the two that they already had, the original Celtics became practically unbeatable. They would also add Joe Lapchick to the squad, who was another future Hall of Famer, giving them four future Hall of Famers in total. Today, that would be like having LeBron James, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, and Anthony Davis on the same team. They bounced back and forth between playing as a member of various pro leagues and playing as an independent barnstorming team. A barnstorming team was basically a team that traveled around the country playing an independent schedule. They would book their own games both home and away and typically split the income from the ticket sales. So because the team's income was based on selling as many tickets as possible, it was important to be a good enough team to sell out the venue. But it was also important to play as many games as possible. The original Celtics would schedule anywhere from 150 to 200 games per year, nearly twice as many as a typical NBA team plays today. And the NBA already plays more games than any basketball league in the world. In 1922-1923, they won 193 out of 205 games. If you want to hear more about what barnstorming was like, go and check out episode 2 of this podcast where I go into more detail on barnstorming as I tell the story of the famous Harlem Renaissance. But the original Celtics also spent time playing in the Eastern Basketball League, the Metropolitan Basketball League, and an older version of something called the American Basketball League. The reason they bounced around were varied. Playing in a league gave you a stability in your schedule that you wouldn't have otherwise. You knew that you had games all lined up for you. You didn't have to go out and spend time trying to book your own games. On the other hand, they were not able to book the normal number of games that they were used to playing, so they didn't make as much money as they were used to. A couple of times, they left the league in the middle of the season so they could start booking their own games and book as many as possible. In 1926, the ABL and its director, George Preston Marshall, in an effort to force the Celtics to join the league, forbid all other league teams from playing the Celtics as part of an independent barnstorming schedule. This took away a bunch of the Celtics' potential opponents. They had no choice but to join the league since their regular opponents wouldn't play them anymore. Today, it would be like a bunch of NBA teams scheduling games outside of the NBA just to sell more tickets and split the money among the players. Imagine that the Lakers, the Warriors, the Celtics, and the Miami Heat schedule an independent doubleheader in Madison Square Garden to be broadcast on ESPN with the two winners playing each other the next day for some unofficial trophy. That's kind of what these teams were doing back in the 1920s. 
except the League stopped it in order to force the, the original Celtics to be part of the League. But despite all of that, they actually won the ABL championship in back-to-back -back years in 1927 and 1928. When they weren't in a league, they traveled all over the country booking games. While they didn't have a perfect record, they were clearly dominant. Based in New York, they would travel as far west as Wisconsin, as far south as Florida, and even to Tennessee to play games. And they sold out wherever they went. It was good income for the players. And a big part of their dominance had to do with the fact that Fury signed his players for very lucrative and exclusive contracts to play for the original Celtics. And this was genius. Nobody else was doing this at the time. He locked up his players for the long haul to ensure that they played all of their games for the original Celtics. And this was not true anywhere else. In most situations in the 1920s, players were paid on a game-by-game -game basis. That means that you had no contract in place to keep you on a certain team. It was not uncommon to see a star player suit up for one team on a Friday night and then suit up for a different team on Saturday night. In fact, there were times when you would see a player play a day game on one team and then play for a different team that night. Could you imagine what it would be like if you saw Kyrie Irving playing for the Brooklyn Nets in a day game and then jump on the subway and play for the Knicks that night? And then he joins the Heat for a couple of weekend games and then back to the Nets? That's what it was like back then. Except for the original Celtics. Because they played together exclusively, they were able to develop a level of chemistry that was unseen in those days. Some people credit Dutch Dennert with inventing pivot play, but it's unlikely that he did because there are records of other teams using a similar style. Dennert simply perfected it. His crazy idea was for him to establish himself just above the free throw line with his back to the basket to receive a pass from one of the guards. Once he received a pass, the two guards would run a crisscross pattern and Dennert would pass it to whichever guard was more open. Other teams had no idea how to defend this. They would also use the give and go to devastate other teams. The name give and go wasn't even invented yet. They just called it playing the return. One player would pass it to a second player and then immediately cut to the basket to receive a return pass for an easy layup. I know that it seems funny talking about this today, but at the time, it was revolutionary. It completely opened up new ways of moving the ball to get open. They also perfected moving without the ball and setting off the ball screens. Now, <laughs> why this makes me laugh is that I currently head coach my nine-year-old son's youth basketball team. I had him running the give and go last year when he was eight. I also teach backdoor screens to kids who still have most of their baby teeth. But the original Celtics absolutely dominated the 1920s and are still considered the best team of the first 50 years of basketball. The team as a whole is in the Hall of Fame. And let's pretend for a moment that I took you in a time machine all the way back to New York City in 1940 and then we found some serious basketball fans and asked them, who is the greatest player who ever lived? Remember, this is 1940. And the answer that we would have received would be either Johnny Beckman, Dutch Dennert, or Nat Holman. And all three were on this Celtics team together. And all three were six feet tall or shorter. 
Basketball back then was not yet dominated by pituitary freaks of nature like it is today. The Celtics' impact on basketball is undeniable. Because of their style of play, many teams of the day adopted pivot play, movement off the ball, quick give-and-go type passes, and the fast break. They pushed basketball development to the next level. Denner and Holman would go on to join the coaching ranks, where they continued to develop the principles that defined their old Celtics team. But eventually, all good things must come to an end. And the team folded in 1930, as the core players all began to lose a step and became less effective as they got older. And this is a team that should never be forgotten. When it was time in 1946 for the new NBA team from Boston to pick a name, the owner wanted a name that came with a strong reputation. So he named his new team the Boston Celtics in honor of the original Celtics that ruled the 1920s. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. As I've mentioned before, this is a labor of love for me. I love going through and doing the research for each of our episodes. I love finding new stories that I didn't know before, and I love pouring through my personal library of nearly 200 books on basketball and its history. So I want to take time to say thank you to all the listeners. About 20% of our listeners come from outside the United States, which is fantastic. So thanks for joining me on this journey to find these old basketball stories that need to be kept alive. Join us next time as I share the story of the greatest financial deal in sports history. And it happened to be a basketball deal involving the NBA and one of the former ABA teams. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go ahead and give us a five-star rating and a review, and that will help others to find this podcast more easily. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. And don't forget to check out sportshistorynetwork.com for more information on my podcast and the rest of the podcasts on our network. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? 
Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.